from WNYC in New York, it's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in series for President Biden's first 100 days. And guess what? Here we are. This is day 100. So folks, this is our last program. We will open the phone shortly for day 100 end of series calls. But first, a very special guest, because this is also the day after President Biden's address to the nation last night, a State of the Union-style address, but they don't call it that in a new president's first year, in which he introduced his American family plan to help people pay for child care and add four years of free public education to the old model of K-12. through The plan has four elements— First, it adds two years of free public pre-K and two years of free public community college. Second thing we need, American Families Plan will provide access to quality, affordable child care. Low and middle-income families will pay no more than 7% of their income for high-quality care for children up to the age of five. The most hard-pressed working families won't have to spend a dime Third, the American Families Plan will finally provide up to 12 weeks of paid leave and medical leave, family medical leave. No one should have to choose between a job and a paycheck or taking care of themselves and their loved ones or parent or spouse or child. A few excerpts of what the president said last night. And fourth, it would extend the child tax credit that's only temporary so far. For most families, that would be $3,000 to $3,600 per child per year. Now, all this adds up to more security and more equality for American families as Biden sees it. Senator Tim Scott in the Republican response saw it very differently. Tonight, we also heard about a so-called family plan, even more taxing, even more spending, to put Washington even more in the middle of your life from the cradle to college. The beauty of the American dream is that families get to define it for themselves. We should be expanding opportunities and options for all families, not throwing money at certain issues because Democrats think they know best. With me now is the chair of the President's Council of Economic Advisors, Cecilia Rouse. She is well known as an expert on topics including the economics of education and ways that the labor market disadvantages women and people of color. She was dean of Princeton University School of Public and International Affairs before joining the administration. Dr. Rouse, we're grateful for you giving us some time on this historic 100th day. Welcome to America. Are we ready? Terrific. It's nice to be here. How much is this plan intended to help reduce income inequality along racial or gender or any other kinds of lines? What this plan recognizes is that um, the United States has some of the highest income inequality in the world. We've got high, you know, extremely high levels even compared for ourselves going back to the 1960s. And part of that means that families in the lowest, you know, quartiles of our income distribution are really struggling. They have not really seen uh, wage income increases over the past several decades. So what this plan is meant to do is to say we understand that uh, it can be a struggle to both participate in the labor force and to pay the rent, and we want to make it that if people have a job, that that they're earning enough in their job to take care of their families. So some of that is through supporting uh, an increase in the minimum wage, which is not part of this plan, 
but another part of it is to helping families uh, who are going to work, who are trying to go to school, make it easier for them to afford the child care, to have a good place where they can put their child, their young child in pre-K, um, and to ensure that uh, overall, when we wrap up both what they're taking home from their paycheck and the kind of support that they're giving in order to participate in the labor market, uh, that their overall, shall we call it compensation, um, is keeping up with those families higher up in the income distributions. And who's in that bottom quarter, that bottom quartile? Is it disproportionately women and people of color? So in that bottom quartile, there was disproportionately women, uh, especially single-headed uh, households. We also have families of uh, color who are in the bottom quartile. Uh, in our rural areas, we know that a lot of households are struggling as well. So this, this plan is really meant to ensure that everybody's participating in our economic growth. We really do believe that paired with the American Jobs Plan, that what we're doing is investing in American productivity, that we are trying to expand our output capacity, and we're trying to ensure that that increased growth is more widely shared. How about the four additional years of public education, two years of pre-K and two years of community college for anyone who wants it? The pre-K is pretty self-explanatory. But on community college, if the president is going that far, two years, why not go all the way to four years of free public college like Bernie Sanders ran for president on? Is a two-years associate's degree even valuable enough for people that it's worth whatever the government would save on those third and fourth years? Well, look, fundamentally what this, these investments reflect is that if we are going to increase growth, we not only need to make investments in our infrastructure and have innovation, but we also have to invest in our people, in our human capital. So, yes, you pointed out, it's well documented, the benefits at the pre-K level starting early. But we also know that those who go beyond a high school education, um, including uh, getting a certificate or an associate's degree at a community college, also are earning substantially more than those who do not. This is a really important start. Our community colleges are open-door institutions. They're in almost every community, and they're often the first stop for many people who are going on to even get a four-year degree. You heard the clip of Senator Scott from the Republican response. He objected to, quote, putting Washington even more in the middle of your life from cradle to college, unquote, and objected to, quote, throwing money at certain issues because Democrats think they know best. So what's your response to his response on those specific points? Well, I guess my response is that we know that there's been a disinvestment of the public sector in our economy over the past 40, 50 years. And that as a result, we have unfinished business when it comes to our physical infrastructure, when it comes to our human capital infrastructure. We know that uh, the private sector, which is critically important, uh, nonetheless underinvest when it comes to innovation because they can't capture all the returns from their investments. We know that people left to their own devices don't invest in their, their human capital and their own education um, unless it's somewhat subsidized from the government because not only does the individual benefit from getting more schooling, but we all benefit from that person's additional schooling. So this is not trying to be prescriptive. What this, these plans are meant to do is to actually 
foster the innovation, to provide the incentive uh, for individuals, for businesses, for states to make the kinds of investments that we believe can actually foster uh, increased productivity. You're an economist, not a political analyst, but it looks to me like the president is trying to go over the heads of Republicans in Congress to Republican voting families who are also struggling enough to have these plans make a difference to them. They're struggling that much. So can you put this in Republican families' economic terms? Like, they may hear our previous exchange on narrowing the racial income gap and think that means it'll take money away from them, mostly white, and give it to someone else. The president truly believes that what, what is best for America is for us to come together and for us to be investing in people and in businesses and, and that the public sector has a role to play in doing so. He is not trying to socialize America. This is not about socialism. But it's recognizing that the playbook that we've basically been following for the last 40, 50 years of deregulation, um, lower taxes as a way of trying to increase growth, has not really benefited a wide variety, you know, the wide, you know, expanse of Americans. And it has not been that that prosperity has not been widely shared, which is why we've been seeing increased income inequality. He really wants to see that that middle class family that works hard um, uh, benefits from a good paying job and is able to take care of their kids and to see their kids go off and have good lives as well. So, you know, this is not about trying to pick and choose different groups. He's trying to be more inclusive. So, yes, he's saying explicitly we want to, to include African Americans and Hispanics and Native Americans in this greater prosperity. It's not to say it's at the exclusion of, you know, traditional Republican voters, whether we call them white, middle class, what we want to call them. But he's trying to say we need to grow together if we're going to stay together as a country. Many commentators are comparing Biden to FDR now, at least in his ambition to remake the economy through government programs. How much does he make that direct comparison to you when you're in meetings with him as chair of his Council of Economic Advisors? And how much do you as an economist see it that way yourself? Uh, well, there is that portrait of FDR in the Oval Office behind the president, and I know that he believes strongly in the power of the government to have a positive influence on, on, on society and our economy. We've been having increasing income inequality that is threatening, I think, you know, going forward, it may threaten our, even our economic prosperity. I also fear it's threatening our democracy. And so I do think it's an inflection point where we need to, to decide, is, is continuing in this direction going to be beneficial to our society, to our country? Um, or is there a role for government to help us come together? There are places where there is a real advantage to public sector investments, where the private sector is just going to come up short. And when you think about existential crises like climate change, where it's just very difficult for the private sector to quickly and efficiently address climate change, if we don't collectively come together as a country and accelerate our, our transformation to you know, clean energy and, and, and recognizing what's coming, we may well lose our advantage and it will just become costly for us, costlier for us as a country as we go. So last question, what metrics would make you satisfied as an economist that you bent the curve in a really important way? This is a very good question. So 
I, I would define success as one, we've got a, uh, our economy is back on track. We have come out of this pandemic induced recession. Uh, we've got low unemployment. We've got um, robust GDP growth and that we feel that our economy is headed in the right direction. In addition, if we have uh, continued to have child poverty, as we know that the child tax credit as, as, as implemented in the American Rescue Plan, and if that's continued through um, the American Family Plan as the president has proposed, uh, so if we see reductions in poverty, if we see um, uh, income inequality is reduced, and if we see that the government coffers have been replenished because we've implemented some important and overdue tax reform, that's what I think I would see as success. Cecilia Rouse, Chair of President Biden's Council of Economic Advisors. Thank you so much for your time today, and good luck. Thank you very much. It was a pleasure to be here. It's America. Are we ready? Final episode. We'll open the phones right after this. Madam Speaker, Madam Vice President, No president has ever said those words from this podium. No president has ever said those words. And it's about time. It's America, Are We Ready? Our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days. It's day 100, the final show in this series. Good evening again, everyone. I'm Brian Lehrer. And let's try something on the phones for a few minutes. I'm just looking for a few callers on this. Then we'll do something else. If you're not calling on this, don't call right now. But if you voted for Donald Trump for president last year, do you like this American Families Plan that Biden revealed last night? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Let us hear from you and tell us why or why not. I realize it's just the first impression we're talking about expanding public education to not just K through 12, but also two years of pre-K and two years of community college. And we're talking about 12 weeks of paid family or medical leave, which Biden says most other industrialized countries offer their workers. Why don't we? And capping daycare costs for families with children under five at 7% of your income if you make up around up to around $120,000 a year. At least that's how I interpret the numbers. So Trump voters, are you for this package or are you against it on first blush as a proper way or not to expand the role of government? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. It will cost about $1.8 trillion over the next decade and be funded, the president says, largely with tax hikes on people making more than 400000 and tax hikes on corporations. 844-745-TALK. Trump voters, 844-745-8255. We'll bring in other callers a little later. And as your calls are maybe coming in, with us now is Washington Post Deputy Editorial Page Editor and Columnist on Domestic Policy and Politics, Ruth Marcus. Thanks for joining us, Ruth. Welcome to America. Are we ready? Thanks for having me on Day 100. Can I ask first, on this 100th day, how you read your news organization's approval poll? Because the Washington Post-ABC News poll out this week, 
as you know, has Biden plus 10 overall, 52 to 42, approval to disapproval. But you also have 53% saying they're worried that he'll do too much to expand the role of government. So how do you see Biden as having been doing politically just before he gave last night's speech? Well, I I think um, remarkably well under the circumstances, the circumstances being um, a pandemic and um, probably even more than that, because I think people are feeling very good about his handling of the pandemic, and the poll underscores that, uh, a very polarized country. And so I think his approval rating very much mirrors uh, the, the vote and, um, and people's views about uh, President Biden and the former guy, as it were. And I think people are um, given pause, and understandably so, a trillion here and a trillion there, and we're talking some real numbers, by the scope of the president's proposals. At the same time, the individual aspects of it poll remarkably well. And so in, in one sense, I think they don't have to be, it's going to be so daunting uh, given the slim congressional majorities for the president to get the totality of his plans approved. I think the worry that he's going to do too much may not come to pass in terms of it It will be so difficult to make it happen. Biden wants to be FDR. I don't know if you heard Dr. Rouse, the chair of his Council of Economic Advisors in the previous segment, citing that picture of FDR that Biden has in his office. But between the child care and education pieces announced last night and the big expansion of home care for the elderly in the Jobs Act bill, other things too, but maybe these things very largely, climate jobs, is this FDR-level stuff? Uh, if it happens, it's absolutely FDR-level stuff. I've been spending the last few hours rereading the first, um, they're not, as you guys know, they're not technically State of the Union addresses, but the first addresses to a joint session uh, by President Biden's uh, most recent predecessors, uh, President Trump's, which was obviously different, Barack Obama's, George W. Bush, Bill Clinton's, and the scope of um, Biden's proposals, the energetic vision he has for a broad federal government involvement, the absence of expressed concerns, which most of these previous addresses had had about the deficit, are all really remarkable signs of a, of a changed political environment and also a changed Democratic Party. On capping people's expenses for daycare for children under five, this is maybe not the most comprehensible part of it right off the bat. People know what uh, universal pre-K is. People know what community college is. But this could also be transformative for a lot of families, it seems to me. So let me go over these numbers, and you tell me what you think they mean. Um, It would be no more than 7% of your income up to one and a half times your state's median income that you would be eligible at that level. So that's a lot, a lot of confusing numbers right there. But in plain English, I think it means if you make the median income of America, which is around $80,000, you couldn't pay more than $5,600 a year for daycare. That's a very small copay for a whole year of daycare, isn't it? Uh, yes, and anybody who knows at any income level the costs of daycare or 
finding and the complexities of finding daycare arrangements knows how daunting that is for women returning to work and how at a certain point if you're going back to work for the reason that most people go to work, which is to make the money to support your family, at a certain point it becomes very, very difficult um, to argue that it's financially sensible for you to go back to work. So to the extent that you can do things to provide um, not only affordable uh, daycare, but also uh, reliable daycare and high-quality daycare, that's the most important thing that you can do um, to do something. And I miss Dr. Rouse, but I wouldn't be surprised if she, uh, it would be surprised if she didn't mention this. The um, disappearance of women from the workforce during the pandemic has been striking and to uh, many of us alarming. And so uh, this is an important proposal for this moment. Diana in Montgomery, Alabama, you're on America. Are we ready? Thank you so much for calling in. Hi, Diana. Hi, how are you? I'm doing great. How about you? I'm doing well. I do like the proposal very much. I just don't know, um, you know, how it's going to affect the businesses that he's going to tax to pay for it. Mm-hmm. Were you a Trump voter like, in 2020? Stop hiring people? Yes. Diana, thank you very much. So that would be a common question, Ruth, right? People who like the sound of it in theory, but worry about how he would pay for it. How would he pay for it? Well, it depends on what the meaning of it is. There is all, um, for the different aspects of the proposal, and this is very important to people like me, the president, who are concerned about the affordability of it, think much of it is a terrific idea, but also recognize that resources are limited or not limitless. Uh, there is a set of proposals to uh, increase uh, the corporate tax rate and do other things to raise corporate tax revenue. And then there's a set of proposals that are consistent with the president's pledge, smart or not, not to raise taxes on anybody making $400,000 a year or less, um, that would, um, through raising the capital gains tax rate and making other changes, uh, particularly aimed at higher-income people, um, would raise money by uh, increasing capital gains taxes, increasing probably federal income tax rates um, for people in the very uppermost um, tax brackets and uh, wealth creation and wealth having in society. And I spoke to one economics columnist yesterday who said, yeah, it's all those things, but that might not totally cover the $4 trillion of the two parts of his infrastructure plan, the Families Plan and the previous Jobs Act, so there will be some borrowing. Uh, Well, maybe there will be, though I was on a call today where the argument was being made that over the long run this, and and I'm not immersed enough in the numbers right now to know whether this is uh, feasible or not, that over the long run, because these changes in the tax code would be persistent over time, that you would end up raising more money than you would end up spending. Yeah. Uh, this is, you know, a, a fairly common promise. But at the very least, what we see from this administration is an attempt to lay down markers for paying for these very um, audacious proposals. Karen in Winthrop, Massachusetts, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Karen. Thanks for calling in. 
Hi, thank you. So you voted for Trump, and what do you think of the American Families Plan? I did vote for Trump. Um, it was a really, uh, it was a very difficult decision that I made, but I did end up voting for Trump. Um, Biden's family care plan speaks to me immediately because my daughter, who is an LPN in her late 20s, and her husband, who just got a new job as an accountant so that he can work to be to take the CPA exam, they just made over a little bit over the amount that they can make to continue getting a subsidy because they have a three-year-old and then they have twins who are about ready to turn two. So, so they cannot afford daycare. So your kids and grandkids are living examples of the pressure of daycare expenses on working families. Did did your exactly. kids, your grown kid, who you're talking about, uh, vote for Trump? I don't know. I never asked her. <laughs> Peace in the family that way. Um, exactly. Yeah. Or did you get any first reaction to this plan from them last night or today? No, because they are dealing with the fact that they don't know what to do now. They don't know if he should quit his job or if she should go to part-time. They're struggling to try to figure out what they can do. They just felt like they were about there to be able to cover everything, and then they can't. And so now they are really trying to figure out what to do. Karen, good luck to them. Good luck to you. Thank you for calling in. Uh, the Biden administration may want to seize this phone call and play it in their next news conference as, see, this is what we're talking about. Charles in Sydney, Ohio. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Charles. Hey, Brian. How are you doing? Good. How about you? You know, my daughter moved to New York, and she wouldn't leave New York until you were on the Internet so she could listen to you. <laughs> she makes me listen to you, and so I'm listening to you now. That's very much, very but, nice. You know, yeah, and we were both teachers, and I, I won't I won't push on this, but I have a, an, an argument on vouchers that if you could get to at the end. But on the family plan, I was saying what you need is unlimited data. You know, we always want... We always want family plans with unlimited data. Ha, ha, ha. And that, you know, that's the first time anyone's laughed at that joke. But in any case, the, the, the idea is it's a public good. If everyone is connected, they all have opportunities. And, you know, it, it, it's more, it's as important as electricity. It's, it's as important as, you know, electrification in rural areas under FDR or something like that. You know, it, you might, obviously, the... Uh, the internet service providers are going to be, they, they're not going to be want to, you know, be pushed out of it, but maybe come up with a public partner, public private partnership. But really that in an information economy, having that, making sure everyone has that, you, I think, you know, I know from New York city, the problems with connection for the students, that wouldn't be a problem if we had a provision somehow, you know, subsidized, subsidized costs or something, that everyone had really good internet. 
Charles, thank you very much. I'm going to leave it there. And Ruth Marcus from the Washington Post, I don't know how much of that was a joke call and how much of that was serious. <laughs> you know, first he was like, oh, it's the family plan, like on your cell phone. Um, but uh, then I guess I he was talking. I think that's what we call a dad joke. Yeah, I guess so. <laughs> um, but, Sorry, uh, dads. But then there was a, you know, a piece in there about universal broadband and what I think was a serious point about the trouble that a lot of kids had during this remote learning period um, who didn't have good internet. And that is actually part of Biden's infrastructure plan, isn't it? It is. I, and it's, it's, a, it's a serious point and a really important point. And there may, there's, there's definitely money for that in the infrastructure plan. And I think it's one of the, we've been having this kind of national, very uh, technical debate about what the meaning of infrastructure is. But I think uh, people in both parties recognize that in a modern world and a, a modern workplace and modern, or at least Zoom time, modern uh, educational environments, uh, being connected is, as, as the caller said, almost like breathing. Give me your political analysis of how possible it is for any of this to pass. I mean, some of the things in the Jobs Act, the earlier part of this two-part infrastructure uh, plan, um, can be called budget items, and so maybe they can go through what's called the reconciliation process in the Senate, where they only need 51 votes instead of the 60 votes. Uh, but a lot of the families plan stuff, maybe not. How, how do you see it? And is this just Biden idealism that's going to go to the Senate to die, most of it? I think that it is um, idealism. It is aspirational. It has a very, very, very tough legislative road ahead. It has a tough legislative road ahead for two reasons. Um, one is the fact that much of it, um, much of what the president talked about last night, not necessarily the um, family's plan and the jobs plan, but some of his other uh, agenda items, uh, like gun measures and uh, the George Floyd Policing Act and things like that will require 60 votes. But even through reconciliation, given, number one, the slim Senate majority, number two, the fact that senators in particular, Joe Manchin, who wrote this in an op-ed for the Washington Post, are reluctant not only to get rid of the filibuster, but to uh, jam yet another humongous package through uh, with the mechanism of reconciliation, it is going to be very, very difficult to get anything but a piece of this very ambitious package passed. And I think that, in in a sense, the president's first hundred days um, may well turn out to have been his both his most his most difficult hundred days because of the daunting challenges that he inherited but also his most successful 100 days oh because he did get this $1.9 trillion package passed. It's going to be so much harder to get the next two packages passed. All right, listeners, after the break, we'll take your calls on question number two. And since it's the final call-in question of the series, what's the most important thing Biden has done in his first 100 days, according to you? Right after this. After 100 days of rescue and renewal, 
America is ready for a takeoff, in my view. We're working again, dreaming again, discovering again, and leading the world again. We have shown each other and the world that there's no quit in America. None. President Biden last night, and it's America Are We Ready, our Thursday night national call-in show for President Biden's first 100 days. Brian Mayer with you one last time here on Day 100 itself. And now we're asking what's the most important thing Biden has done in his first 100 days, according to you. 844-745-TALK. Call from anywhere in America, 844-745-8255. Now, you can love that thing. You can hate that thing. You can have mixed feelings about that thing. But what's the most important thing Biden has done in his first 100 days, according to you? 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Or anything you'd like to ask our guest, Washington Post, Deputy Editorial Page Editor, and columnist on domestic politics and policy, Ruth Marcus, 844-745-TALK, 844-745-8255. Ruth, as those calls are coming in, looking back at the last two Democratic presidents, and I'm curious if you see history this way, Bill Clinton was elected in 1992, promising to end the polarizing Reagan era with some Democratic compromises on things like crime and welfare, And then he proposed a big health care bill and a tax hike on the rich after Reagan had cut them so much. And guess what happened? The Democrats got slaughtered in the midterm elections in 94, and Clinton lost control of Congress. Then Barack Obama was elected in 2008, promising to end the polarizing George W. Bush era. Um, And then Obama proposed a big stimulus bill for the Great Recession and a big health care bill, the Affordable Care Act. And then there was the Tea Party backlash, and he lost control of Congress in his first midterm election in 2010. Now you have Biden elected with a Democratic Congress to end the polarization of the Trump era and proposing these big Democratic Party plans we've been talking about. If you agree with that reading of history, how do they hold Congress in 2022? It's going to be really um, incredibly difficult. And it's not just a reading of the history of Democratic presidents. Uh, midterms uh, are not kind to uh, the fates of presidents of either party. It is just a fact of life historically that parties tend to, pre- pre- the president's party tends to lose seats in the midterm election uh, unless there's something kind of unusual going on. The reality here is that the majority is so slim. I mean, the Senate majority is one that defied expectation, you know, everybody's expectations that the Democrats would manage to win those two Georgia seats in the runoffs uh, after the election, after regular election day. And the House majority is vanishingly, and from Nancy Pelosi's point of view, alarmingly slim. And so, in particular, the House is very much, um, very much in jeopardy for Democrats. And I think that is a piece of the explanation for what we were talking about in the previous segment, which is this is the time for um, Biden to go big. He, he knows because the chances are that his majorities in one or both houses are not going to be around after the, the midterm elections. 
That's one reason to go big. Spend your political capital while you have it. But it's also a political strategy to, you know, with a theory that actually Obama went too small um, with the stimulus bill in the Great Recession. So not enough people were helped by it that they came over to his side or the Democrats for Congress side. And so Biden is trying to go bigger that I've heard political analysts say bigger and bigger and bigger. So more people are covered by it. So more people will like it. Uh, is that what you think he is doing? And as a political analyst, is that something you think will work? Well, I think he is doing something that is not Obama, but for a different reason than you said. I think the size of the Obama of the Obama stimulus and actually the composition of the Obama stimulus, which had a significant num- number of tax cuts in it, was the size that it was, which many people said was inadequate at the time, uh, because that was the amount that could be gotten through Congress, even with lar- much larger majorities um, than. President Biden has now. They, it wasn't that they could have gotten a $1.9 trillion bill through Congress. It, wasn't, it just wasn't within the realm of the possible. I do think that the lesson, that, that very important lesson that President Biden is correctly taking from President Obama is when you don't have a ton of time, don't dither around with Republicans waiting for them to come around to cooperate with you. Mm. Um, President Obama lost a lot of time on the health care bill when he had a greater majority and a potentially filibuster-proof majority trying to bring Republicans on board, and it was never enough Republicans on board, and it was never going to happen. And so I think the Biden folks, many of whom served in the Obama administration, very much learned from that experience. I think that um, the, and, and I think that's a smart political lesson. The political lesson is don't wait around for something that's not going to come. At the same time, if you think it's possible, go ahead and do it, but make that decision Mm -hmm. early on so you're not just um, spinning your wheels while the election creeps up on you. All right. We have calls on the question, what's the most important thing Biden has done in his first Hundred days, according to you, love it or hate it or whatever. And maybe as a courtesy to the president, we'll start in his home state, Maurice in Wilmington, Delaware. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Maurice. Hey, how you doing? Good. What's the most important thing he did, according to you? Um, yeah, I think he's made a sense of normalcy, like out of today's press. Um, for the longest time, like I watched CNN for the last four years when Trump was president, just to see what outrageous things, you know, he would come up with the next day. But uh, now since Joe Biden's been president, it seems like everything's more calm, more on an even kill. You don't, you know, I don't really turn into CNN anymore to uh, see what's going on in Washington. But uh, to me, he just made it seem like it's a very, things are going back to normal. It's Less, everything's a little bit more calm now. Maurice, thank you so much. That's simple but profound, Ruth, isn't it? I mean, the president of CBS or somebody high up at CBS, do you remember in 2016, yeah. I think, said um, 
Trump may be bad for the country, but he's great for CBS because so many people were watching the news. So Maurice now has flipped that for 2021. He's not watching CNN anymore to see what edge of your seat thing is going to happen next. So what's bad for CNN might be good for the country. I I think that's true. And it's not just CNN. I think it's been reported that many news organizations are seeing lower viewership or um, lower traffic on their um, online sites. But the sheer um, relief that the listener feels in not having to um, click on the television, open your phone, and see what crazy thing the President of the United States has said recently um, is really one of the remarkable transformations of the first 100 days of the Biden presidency, I think. All right. Ron in Pittsburgh, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Ron. What's the most important thing Biden has done in his 100 days? There are many, in my view, but one of them is uh, Deb Deb Holland appointing her to head the U.S. Department of the Interior, um, overseeing over 450 million acres of our public land, which goes way, way beyond just our national parks and monuments. And um, uh, there's so much economy-wise infrastructure that comes from there, and uh, our native plants and, and fauna out there, including uh, juniper, pinion, uh, other native trees and grasses, are mm-hmm. under threat. A lot of uh, industries are pressuring the Bureau of Man- uh, Land Management, and even our uh, wild horses and burros are under threat, according to many knowledgeable people uh, from outside interests that are pressuring for a number of roundups beginning in June. And, Ron, thank you very much. And Deb Holland also notable for being the first Native American Interior Secretary, considering especially the Interior Department's relationship um, with the Native lands. Heidi in Francistown, New Hampshire, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Heidi. Hi. Um, Well, I think that the most important thing that he has done is to exercise unerring judgment in everything that he has been doing. And I think that shows in his cabinet appointments. I think it shows in the orderly way in which he's been addressing the problems that uh, uh, he inherited from the virus to the economy to um, uh, everything else that he mentioned last night. And um, in knowing how to work with and around Congress, just knowing knowing his way around Washington, knowing how to get things done. Judgment and experience for Heidi in Francistown, New Hampshire. Jeremy in Duluth, Minnesota. You're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Jeremy. What's the most important thing the president has done so far to you? Honestly, I think it's uh, confidence that uh, he's given to the American people. He's, I don't know, for some reason, the way he speaks is a lot different than his uh, predecessor. Not saying not his predecessor was a bad man or he wasn't smart, but you create confidence in the country, you create confidence in people. We get to do better, we do better. And that's what he's bringing to this nation, I believe, at this moment. Jeremy, thank you very much. Um, it's funny looking at the Washington Post ABC News poll from the other day, Ruth, that. That feeling, we've heard a similar thing from a few of the callers. In a way, they're all versions of he's not Trump, Um, Mm -hmm. but with his tone 
and what they see is his judgment and the sort of stability. Um, but when you look at the poll, he's hardly won any Republicans over except on his handling of COVID. Right. Well, and I, I've been surprised that none of the initial callers have mentioned the handling of COVID. But I think the um, the fact of extraordinarily high Democratic support and extraordinarily low Republican support just goes to what we were talking about earlier in terms of the entrenched partisanship. I would say that in addition to being not Trump, the and I think that the, the one thing that I would give the Trump administration uh, significant credit for was putting energy and money and uh, effort behind the vaccine development. But I think that the Biden team's effort to get those vaccines to people to speed up distribution has gone uh, remarkably, remarkably well. And I think if there is one thing that I would say for the country that is the most important thing the president and his team have done, it would be that, getting, making sure that as many people have been vaccinated as quickly as possible. And now, of course, they face the new challenge of getting the reluctant folks to take the vaccine. Peter in Tampa, Florida. Hi, Peter. What's the most important thing the president has done in his first hundred days, according to you? I think the uh, Armenian genocide, recognizing it, it was it was long overdue. But this may <clears throat> this may seem a little uh, glib. It, it there's gonna, not going to be any negative consequences to it. You know, well, what I'm I don't even know if that's true. So, Peter, thank you for that. And Ruth, let's linger on that for just a second. Uh, there could be consequences in finally calling the Armenia. Armenian genocide of 100 years ago, uh, a genocide because it was carried out by the Ottoman Turks. And we have, you know, sketchy relationships with Turkey, which is a very important country in the Middle East. Absolutely. It was a it was a bold thing to do that his predecessors had talked about doing and shied away from doing. And I know I, I would not have identified it as the most significant, but it is significant, and it is an insight into um, a, a little bit of a, a much bolder Joe Biden than I think many of us who've watched him for many years now had anticipated. Colleen in Mercer County, New Jersey, you're on America. Are we ready? Hi, Colleen. What's the most important thing the president has done in his first 100 days? Um. His, his energetic, proactive, um, progressive, aggressive um, uh, uh, proposals on climate change and, 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 and putting that forth as a jobs program and um, a cost-efficient way to, um, to invest in the future, in young people's lives, because and 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 the cost savings in investing in our in our uh, in climate change and moving to a uh, electrification of vehicles, electrification of the future, mm -hmm. and and greening of our buildings, and his his energy and his optimism and his we can do this at, um, approach to it, and it's not a 
daunting, overwhelming thing, but it's something we can all do together. And he is, um, and and the way that his young people have just have come forth to join in this in this effort. In that, in uh, that but, effort, Colleen, thank you so much. And that final set of calls for this 15-week series, America, Are We Ready?, kind of shows, Ruth, don't you think, that the president has been active on a lot of fronts. Those early calls were all, he's not Trump, but then we got to protecting Western lands, climate change, the Armenian genocide. You mentioned vaccines and arms. It's been pretty active. Remarkably active and remarkably progressive, given his traditional position within the Democratic Party. So what do the second 100 days hold in our last 20 seconds or so? Uh, a, a much bumpier road, I'm afraid. I don't want, what, I, I want to be proven not correct, but it, it's going to be more frustrating. At least we had that moment last night that we started the show with, or started one of the segments with, where he said that he was standing in front of the Speaker of the House and the Vice President of the United States, and they were both women for the first time in history. Should be noted, right? I thought that was a great moment. Ruth Marcus, Deputy Editorial Page Editor and Opinion Columnist for the Washington Post on domestic policy and politics, thanks so much for joining us tonight. Thanks for having me. Happy 100th day. And listeners, thank you for joining us during these 15 Thursday nights that made up Biden's first 100 days. We hope you found these conversations open and honest and informative, and we've been happy to provide a place for you to have a voice calling in from coast to coast. If those of you who are not in the WNYC listenership would like to follow my other work, I have a daily podcast called Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Brian Lehrer, a daily politics podcast. Otherwise... Maybe I'll talk to you again on other evening specials sometime. Meanwhile, do support your local public radio station if you listen to it a lot. And onward we go. Today, 101.